Ultra. Welcome to Disney Animation Minute Essentials, where we are drowning in Disney's The Little Mermaid, one minute at a time. I'm Andrew Dorowski. And I'm Kestra Dorowski. And today, we are discussing minute number 21 of Disney's The Little Mermaid, which begins with uh, a shot of Max, the dog, his butt high in the air, sniffing the deck of a ship. He's on the hunt for some mermaid. And this minute ends uh, when Ariel says, no, not that one. Uh, describing humans to scuttle. This minute features Ariel getting caught spying on the humans by Max the dog, Ariel seeing Eric for the first time, and Scuttle joining Ariel in the spying. Yes, it does. Listeners, big explanation right now. This is Kestra and Andrew from the modern day. From (laughs) 2020. As opposed to the three years previous Kestra and Andrew. This is a week that we need to re-record. And so we are back, just the two of us, getting our our sea legs uh, (laughs) uh, under us with recording minute-by-minute discussions of The Little Mermaid. So if this week seems a little incongruous with the week's preceding and uh, proceeding, then that's why. It's because it's recorded three years different in time from it. Yes. So. Three years and two children. Yes. Well... They were part of the three years. You know, they don't (laughs) serve as their own unit of time. Yes. But yeah, that's a big factor for us. So if things seem a little different, that's why we are relearning our stuff. And hopefully by the time uh, we're doing the week to week in the modern day, things will be settled in a little bit more. And we won't have uh, any guests until later on this week. So getting just the two of us again, uh, that's part of how we're rolling now. Yeah, it'll be really exciting and nervous and like we'll be really nervous and hesitant probably a little bit but we can we can do this yes and we are getting back into it and it will be great okay let's talk about the minute okay so it starts off with max love max love max great dog i have some information about max okay just since i've been editing i remember things from the previous week we have broken down max's breed and details like that Okay, so but have we have we talked about um, his animators? I don't think so. So go ahead. If you got your notes for today, then then go for it, listeners. It is hard for us to remember everything that we've already talked about, and so if there is duplication, we apologize. We apologize. Right? We didn't want to re-record the entire movie. Yes, and sometimes that means we're going to repeat things that we had thought three years ago. Yeah, we didn't want to re-record, especially because we already had some really great discussions and guests on, and we didn't want to just put those down the drain. Yeah. Okay. So, animators for Max the dog. Max. So, his animator is Russ Edmonds, and the voice, so the person who does all the barking and growling and all of that, is Frank Welker. Um, I have... That, I mean... It's a short list for who you're going to guess for that sort of stuff. Like Frank Welker or uh, D. Bradley Baker. Yes. And at the time, it, it was really Frank Welker's game. Mm-hmm. But there is, and this this is for tomorrow, so I won't go deep into it, but there is one, thi- one thing that's different about um, 
about something that is that he voices. So Frank Welker doesn't voice one thing that Max says, and that comes in tomorrow. So I'll explain okay. that tomorrow. And that that's all that I have for Max, for the animator. I do have one note. The gray that Mac, of Max's color mm-hmm. um, of his fur is was very hard for the animators to to get right and to get like the right color and texture as well. Why? I don't know. Okay. It was. And <laughs> But they talk about having difficulty establishing the right shade of gray mm-hmm. for his coat. I mean like I'm trying to think about the texture in particular because I don't feel like I think about the texture yeah. on him. But it, it was mostly the color that they were having a hard time getting right. And the reason that they brought Max into the film was they felt like Eric needed a companion like Max. Mm-hmm. And Max is great. Love he, Max. He gives some solid facial expressions to just kind of emphasize what it seems like Eric is feeling. He seems extremely tied into to Eric, although he does get what's going Like, he gets it way more than Eric. Eric is not... He's not a dummy. I mean, when he's sniffing, it's it's like he's saying, I smell something. I smell fish. I smell I smell Which mermaid. Which is a question, like, what does mermaid smell like? like? I don't know. But in the in the nose of a dog, like, it smells, smells mean, like, are stronger and different. Yeah. It's like, okay, mermaid is going to smell salty, seawater, oceany. But what else? Like, does a mermaid smell fishy? I mean, they have a... a tail that has scales and i don't know what causes the fishy smell in fish that is, is it a... something about the scales and the skin or is it something internal i have no idea i want to say that biology it... is like kind of messy right well, like, that's cause obviously it... It... that's because it... mermaids aren't real yes <laughs> valid point <laughs> um but like are they amphibious are they mammalian like they can't be mammalian I don't know. Anyway, so I don't know what, like, the fishy smell from fish is caused by and whether or not a mermaid would have that anatomical element. Yeah, I don't know. Because, oh, man, and, like, some of it's like, is it because of gills? Is it because of what they eat? I mean, and then you, now I wonder, now I'm wondering about, like, the mercury content of mermaid, because that's, like, a concern with fish. Is like excess mercury. I, I I don't know what to tell you. I I keep saying these. As, uh, come on, don't you have the answers? <laughs> I don't. I'm. You do the majority of our research. You don't have the answers. But I didn't think to research the what mermaid biology and and what makes a fish smell like fish, or what a mermaid would smell like, because no one has those answers. Because they're not again, real. yes. They're not real. Harsh. Harsh <laughs> truths from Disney Minute, Disney Animation Minute Essentials. Goodness, it's been three years and you can't get our name right. I can't even say it right. <laughs> okay, what else do you have about this minute? Uh, I have that Scuttle says intrepidacious. I like that word. Love that word. Not, not a great actual word. No, it's not in the dictionary. But, um, so I assume that's a combination of intrepid. And trepidatious. Yes, probably. Um, so trepidatious and, and trepidation would be hesitancy, whereas intrepid would be, like, adventurous. Like an adventurous spirit. You know, somebody is intrepid if they are going boldly, to, you know, paraphrase other popular media. Right. 
And so it's one of his more interesting um, non-words because it's a combination of words that are, I would say there's some contradictory nature to those. Yes. Right? Adventurous and, and courageous. And then he says, we're, we're all to, to discover. Which I love that moment. And then Ariel just has to, to grab him. No, she doesn't shush him. She grabs his mouth. Yes. Um, where he's like, okay, like we're spying. I'm being sneaky. They'll hear you. And then he just starts shouting adventure. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, I, back to intrepidatious. Like, it makes me wonder if I need to think about more of the words that he has said incorrectly and see is like, are those intentionally combinations of contradictory phrases or, or words and things like that? Uh, well, because I, this one pretty specifically is. Yeah. I can tell you Snarfblatt and Dinglehopper are, are not, most knockly not. But... But those are for nouns, and so maybe when he's dealing with uh, adjectives or, or adverbs, you know, descriptive things, mm-hmm. maybe in those cases he is going to be using things that are contradictory or something. I mean, but then you get into the Broadway musical, and there's there's just a lot more that he's saying wrong. And Well, but there's like a whole crew of seagulls that are all the same yes. as him. But it's so fun. It's so fun. Um, One of my notes is that Eric, so during this, Eric is is playing the recorder, basically, right? It's a little a little horn. I don't know, a little flute, horn, a little pipe, a little pipe. I would yeah, say, yeah, horn. Horn is not a good descriptor, no. but yeah, I mean, he basically seems to be playing a recorder. But as he's doing that, um, the the motions and the dancing and like the way his body posture is held reminds me a lot of um, Fantasia and the. Um, the the pastoral symphony that they do with all the the Greek mythology and the the nymphs and the satyrs and all of that yeah um, and so like the way he's playing his pipe and the way he's like got his body aimed downward towards Max and everything reminds me a lot of the pipe playing um, satyrs I think they're doing like pan flutes and stuff I can um, see that in uh, in Fantasia but it just like it evokes like a really specific um, pastoral Motion. I don't know. You know, body language and posture and all yeah. that sort of stuff. The the like being down, but the high knees and the tiptoes and all that is like. That's I, how you would be like. I'm a satyr, right? And you'd be like pan flute and like yeah. high knees and tiptoes and, and like crouching. And it's it's hard to play an instrument and dance around like that. Even even just, if it just is ask a, Lindsay Sterling. Pipe. Yes. <laughs> but um, which um, it initially. So when I worked um, for my college radio station, I interviewed Lindsay Sterling. So I asked her about, like, the process of developing, like, violin playing and dancing simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And originally she had to practice and choreograph very specifically. And she was was very particular about how she was going to move while playing. And over time, she's she's able to loosen it up quite a bit and gesture more fluidly um, with her playing. But, yeah, so what you're saying... Playing music and dancing at the same time. Yeah, pretty hard work. Uh, another, n- I have notes about Eric and his designers. Okay. And we've, we've talked talk, about his... Talk about Eric. We've talked about his uh, a voice actor um, in the beginning. Mm-hmm. But the his designer is the one and only Glenn King. Wonderful animator, wonderful designer. Uh, I would say a master animator. Yes. I, I mean... I'm trying to think if there's anyone 
in this era whose name we would be able to like really pull out as like yeah this is like a great animator like he like he has a a name with with clout in animation equivalent to like a don bluth mm-hmm. um i'm trying to think of others <laughs> you know like there's not a lot of names that people are going to pull out but but glen keen is one of them he's a top tier um disney and and outside of disney yes animator you yes. know if you want to learn animation find the clips of of glenn Keane's animation because he does some really impressive interesting things he i mean he worked so hard on ariel mm-hmm. too is is he a disney legend if he's not i'm sure it's only a matter of time um okay. because i mean he he did so much through like the whole renaissance he did a lot um i mean we, we talked about this um the last time we watched tarzan where it seems like one of the advantages that they had with the like three-dimensional technology and, and the, the fluidity that gave the camera work and everything like that, it basically allowed them to do stuff that Glenn Keane had been doing for decades anyway. It's like, finally, we can like keep up with yeah. him. We can use the technology to mimic the, the artistry that he brought to it. Because Glenn Keane does this fluidity and and like use of camera. Like He plays with the three-dimensional space in a way that a lot of animators aren't going to do or maybe can't do. Yeah. Um, and like, instead of moving the character around in three dimensions, he moves the camera in three dimensions around the character who is also moving in three dimensions. It just has that extra complexity. Yeah. He's pretty great. So he designed Eric, but the animator was Matthew O'Callaghan. Um, and they got a lot of inspiration from different uh, celebrities for the design I mean, of... He's- Celebrity face. Yeah. Any guesses on two? There are four that he that they took. Okay, I don't know if John Stamos was significant at the time. But he was one of the ones that inspired inspired Eric. And and John Stamos, huge Disney fan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. But so that fits. If it were the modern day, I would talk about uh Matt Bomer. Okay, but but it's not it's not 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 Matt Bomer because he was too young. Um, so there's three others mm-hmm. besides John Stamos. Um, I got nothing. Okay. So they got the original inspiration, obviously, from the prince in Han Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid, right? Just well, not, not but, just like the original inspiration. But that's like inspiration. Character, right? Yes. Like, okay. I'm like, but, but that doesn't have a visual. No. But the other four, so we had John Stamos. Okay. Mel Gibson. Okay. Eric Larson. That sounds really familiar, but I can't place a I can't place the face. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna look him up. Okay. And Mark Hamill. Oh. Okay. I can see a little of the Mark Hamill. Not a ton of it, but But th- th- there's a little bit of that there, but you can definitely see the John Stamus because like there's a lot of that there. Yeah, um, and, and some of it's maybe um that uh John Stamos has like maintained his role as like Hollywood celebrity handsome leading man visually yeah. if not in his actual like um in not his history of performance not his IMDb mm-hmm. IMDb catalog yeah. but he was always thought of as like this is a handsome guy yeah and mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense have you found Eric Larson yeah I got 
I got nobody. Hang on. Well, whoever you are, Eric Larson, you inspired like, it immediately, Prince Eric. It does not immediately pull up... Um, a celebrity? So the first thing that came up was a jur- journalist. Okay. And then an animator. And then an actor. So I found an actor. And I'm going to try and... Find a picture of him? Yeah, I'm going to try and pull something for him. Um, but it's... So I guess he hasn't maintained his... Um, celebrity infinitely i'd say out of out of the four you listed um i mean mark hamill extremely well known but john stamos makes the most sense mm-hmm. for it's like yeah okay i see i see the john stamos yeah i cannot figure out who this person is yeah yeah, yeah i don't know the the precise eric larson because it seems like there's maybe more than one actor because there's multiple ways to spell eric and larson I'm like okay i'm not yeah totally sure on that one yeah John's name must really fits them. Yes. And then Mark Hamill. He's a little bit of there. And yeah, I can see like a Mel little Gibson. bit of it. I think, I think I see in the Mark Hamill, um, like some of the attitude and approach to it. Um, Absolutely. You know, and like, I can picture Mark Hamill reading these lines. Yes. Yeah. That's one of the big things. And so maybe that was also an influence on like. The writing, which Mark Hamill, fantastic voice actor. Oh, abs- like wonderful. Hundreds, hundreds, and you, hundreds. You keep of telling voice me they're acting. like we're we're watching different like oh, shows. That's Mark, that's Mark that's Hamill. Hamill. I'm like, wait, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, oh yeah, it is him because it's like if you listen. Uh, but the ref, another, um, they have a reference model for yeah the the physical reference uh-huh. the actors who who were performing. Yeah. it was uh, for Ariel Sherry Stoner and Eric was Joshua Finkel. Okay. So good to get those names out there and give representation to them. I mean, and I'm sure we've talked about this elsewhere in the podcast because we we love talking about like the physical reference work that they do. Sort of a lost element. Yeah, it feels like you know it was really big in classic era stuff for for Snow White and for Sleeping Beauty, and and they had um, you know the same reference model for. Um, Wendy for like and Wendy Alice. and Alice, um, and all those kinds of things, and and Little Mermaid was the what they, they kind of brought to... it back, and I don't think they kept it consistently. No. They wanted to have some of the original concepts, including the the reference models, but also having new technology and and bringing mm-hmm. in new stuff, and that's why this is the Renaissance. Yeah, and and I mean, doing all this reference modeling and all that, like on a shoestring. Yes. Budget. Whereas in the classic era, it was all in, like, there's imagery of reference models for Sleeping Beauty in the full costume yeah. and with the hair up and everything, doing the twirling and moving her hands so that they could get the referencing. And for Little Mermaid, it was like, we're going to put them in pretty rough approximation costumes and we are doing this around our office space. I mean, we'll talk about it when we get to kiss the girl, but they used a, a, <laughs> an a, office chair. Office They're chair. dragging an office chair across the floor with a camera at, at a specific angle. It's like, okay, let's just see what it looks like. Whereas you can imagine in the classic Disney, they would have been out at a pond yes. with somebody in a rowboat. Yeah. And so, you know, they were replicating the old techniques, but not with the old um, support yeah. structure because but, because they almost shut they were about to shut yeah, down the like, animation if, studio if this doesn't if this doesn't work out then animation studio for disney is is out um, out the which is so crazy to think about <laughs> yeah it's crazy um but yeah so always always want to support the reference um actors whenever we 
we can identify them. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, so not just that um, because it was so lost, but it also became, so it wasn't just like a lost technique that they weren't using them, but also the animators didn't have the experience of using them. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's a, a, a lost technique for animation as well as for like referencing. Um, yeah. In general. Does that make sense? I mean, it does. Like, both on, we didn't have actors doing these things, but then the animators didn't have the pattern of using actors to do these things. They didn't so have it, the experience. Yeah. In it. And so, if you think about these animators, are, are ones who worked on, uh, uh, in many cases, a lot of movies um, through what we would call the, the dark era. But, you know, like, Oliver and Company is not having reference work done. No. Um, you know, I think even 101 Dalmatians probably not having a lot of reference work done. And then they really, in that Renaissance, another reasons why, another reason why the Renaissance term is so suited is the additional, like, return to form that they were doing for how are we making these movies, right? It was, um, you know, the attention to detail and Lion King bringing lions into studio to watch and reference, just like they did with Bambi. Right. You know, we need to understand how these things move yeah. and work. And and you just feel that in the era before, you know, the in-between era, that's not the effort. Not that they weren't making effort. Right. Like, we love those movies. Right? And we're going to talk about 101 them. 101 is great. But there's differences in the technique. And when and you have those differences, it. it can affect the overall yeah. product. And then when you go back to something that was a really effective, useful thing if you're trying to replicate that. Right? Yeah. And so the Renaissance is about replicating that. In the Dark Era, they were not trying to replicate yeah. Snow White. That just wasn't the intention, right? They weren't making the fairy tales. And so I don't want it to seem like they weren't doing good work. Mm-hmm. Because they were. <laughs> they absolutely yes. were doing great work. They were just doing different work. Yes. And there was different emphasis from the top. There was different leadership. And so it's not... I'm not trying to just, shoot down animators. Just because or we call it the Dark Age doesn't mean they weren't good. There weren't. There were not good films because there were, and doesn't mean that like the animation style and everything wasn't good because they it, were. It They're just different. And, yeah. And 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 using new technology like the Xeroxing and all those kinds of options changed the style, the flow, the the techniques, and all of that sort of stuff. And then they had a different leadership and all of those impact it yeah and and one of the big reasons that we call it the dark age is because there did eventually form not a hostility but a an attitude of getting by and that's not animators faults right it is a very complicated history of of leadership and budget and animators and all this stuff where there was you know the the referencing to old um, animation sequences. Well, we're just going to copy, you know, this dance sequence. Baloo is in in Jungle Book and basically in Robin Hood yeah. and things like that. And so you have, you know, patterns of that and the things that got people disgruntled, like Don Bluth, eventually leading for, you know, that that big shift in animators moving out. And those kinds of things just eventually build up and build up and put the animation studio in jeopardy. Yes. Um, which is... One of the big reasons that we call it the Dark Age is because of the, the you know, decrease in staff with the Don Bluth split. And then and then the danger that that period put the animation studio in. And it required something like Little Mermaid to be different and classic and 
rejuvenating. Yeah. You know, if they had made anything else. (laughs) Yeah. If they had made another Oliver and company, it probably wouldn't have worked. You know, even with the same team, they needed to have that team and then have that attitude approach leadership. Uh, John and Ron, you know, as directors saying like, we've got to give this our, our all and change it up. And we're going to try and go back. And because it worked, it counts as a renaissance, right? If it doesn't work, then then there's just no animation studio. And so yeah. not to knock the Dark Ages. Yes. You know, it's just how we refer to, refer to them and the period and attitude and approach and, and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But then coming back with, with the fairy tale, with a princess um, and, and the musical and all of that sort of stuff. I mean, it's just the terminology. Yes. I had one more note for this minute and then one that I think you wanted to more specifically talk about. Uh, but one was um, Ariel's lips when she smiles after uh, Max licks her face and she mm-hmm. smiles. Um, her lips were hand inked. It's one of the only things that were hand inked um, because it, they were just so hard to get right in any other style, whether like any other style that they had to do, they had just had to hand ink Ariel's lips, especially in that moment when she smiled. Hmm. Um, and then the other one was the music that they're playing. Oh, um, well, so you had written this down, but it's something that we had discussed yes. and, and, and something that, I mean, we're not inventing this, but um, in one of the commentaries for little mermaid, um, John and Ron and Alan um, talk about a lot of different things <laughs> with the film. It's a really great commentary. Yeah. Um, and I love that Alan Menken is joining the directors because of what an influence the, the musical side of these movies had. Um, Alan and Howard, um, Alan Menken and, and Howard Ashman um, being involved in this stuff. And so during that commentary, they, they do talk about pursuing the influence of Edvard Grieg, the classical composer, in uh, how they were approaching some of the music, and so listening to a lot of that, and and um, and replicating some some themes and things like that, uh, to and and that was you know just to try and define the the music for this movie, um, and so the music that they're playing, the the jig music that they're playing for this sequence, um, I remember noting, it seemed like there were definite similarities to grieg's Piergen suite uh the the portion called in the hall of the mountain king which is probably the most famous portion of greek that you could be and <laughs> mimicking and replicating and the most like iconic definitive thing and but, i mean and there's more references to that um in poor unfortunate souls which you'll hear us talk about mm-hmm. uh, and and all of that too so yeah and you can definitely I mean, hear the similarities and the and the influences from from and from i wouldn't i wouldn't have called this out Without the commentary. Yes. Um, but if they mention it, then, you know, you're going to pay a little more attention to it. And it's not massively significant. I mean, it's it's not even like the same tone. It's not even the same instrumentation. But it just seems like the, um, just some of the patterns or, or scales um, that get followed. It's like, oh, that seems a lot like Piergen Suite. Yeah. Which would be Grieg's most famous work. Yes. That's everything that I have. 
In that case, that's all we have for you today, listeners. We are part of Dueling Genre. You can find us and many other podcasts at DuelingGenre.com. There you will also find a link to the Patreon page where you can support all Dueling Genre productions. We're on Twitter and Instagram at DizMinute, on email as DisneyAnimationMinute at gmail.com, and on Facebook at the Disney Animation Minute Secret Essential Listener Society or Damsels Group. We also want to thank Star Wars Minute for starting the whole Movies by Minutes trend. Uh, It's pretty fantastic, and we're especially grateful that it is stable and continuing and that we're able to step back into it now. Until next time, listeners, thank you for making us part of your world.